Today's passage reading is Matthew 26, 30-46. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Surely I tell you this, the very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and praying, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour. Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, you will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So he leaves them. Again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. In the Revolutionary War, it was the battle at Saratoga. After General Howe's occupation of Philadelphia had crushed the revolutionary spirit, it was the victory at Saratoga that renewed their confidence and their determination. And moreover, this victory was what encouraged France to make an open alliance with the Americas after two years of semi-secret support. And in the Civil War, it was the combined Union capture of Vicksburg, Mississippi, and the victory at Gettysburg that dealt a powerful blow to the Confederates. In World War I, it was the Battle of the Marne, for the Germans not only lost their momentum, but they also began to lose ground, and it meant that the German army could not just quickly win the war. And in World War II, it was the Battle of Midway that put the Japanese on the defensive, boosted American morale, and turned the tide in the Pacific. And then it was the Battle of the Bulge, where the German forces in the West were finally broken. Friends, the wars were won because those particular battles were won. If those battles had been lost, then there's a good chance the war would have been lost. And today, what Jeff just read for us is one of those battles. This is a battle that was going to determine the outcome of the war. It was a bloody, hard-fought battle. And it wasn't fought with swords or with guns. It was fought with prayer 
and with tears and with submission. The battle wasn't waged on a field of battle. Rather, it was fought in the field of the human heart. This was the final battle that would determine the outcome of war. Because with this battle in the garden being fought and won, and the decision and the declaration, then victory was assured and salvation would be secured because of the battle that we see Jesus fight in the garden that night. Now, the astute amongst us will notice that last week, you'll say, Adam, we studied Matthew chapter 22, and this is Matthew chapter 26. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten how to count. So, however, we've already looked at Matthew chapter 23. And what we're going to do is we're going to wait to look at Matthew's chapter 24 and 25, because both of those talk about the prophecy about the temple's destruction and Jesus' eventual second coming, his return. And so we're actually going to wait and handle those after Easter. After we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Christ, which is coming up in about a month, we will go back and we'll look at chapters 24 and 25. So today, where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves on the road to Calvary. We find ourselves on the way to that final war that was going to be fought on the cross on Calvary's hill. And this is the great battle that was going to determine the war. And the battle was fought in an olive garden called Gethsemane. Now, just like in other battles, there were casualties. Because not all soldiers are ready for battle. And like a good general, Jesus knows his troops. We hear him warn them ahead of time. He says, not every one of you is going to make it. In fact, he actually says, not any of you is going to make it. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, you will all, all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Friends, a 0% success rate is not very good odds. But that's what Jesus says. You'll all fall away. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, doesn't believe it and starts to argue with Jesus in verse 33. Peter answers Jesus, although they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Friends, it's so easy to be bold before the battle. But the question is, are you actually prepared for the battle? Are you prepared for it? Jesus answers Peter in verse 34. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you, you, Peter, will deny me three times. He says, Peter, you're not even going to last the night. Despite your big promises, your, your big boasts, before the alarm clock goes off tomorrow, you'll deny me not once, not twice but three times. Friends, pride goes before a fall. You know, whether it's pride like, like Peter had that he wore on his sleeve, or whether it's a more subtle pride, pride goes before a fall. Because pride makes us think that we are bigger than we are. It makes us think that we're unstoppable. Pride makes us think that we could never fail. I could never do that. Although they all fall away, they could do that. I, I couldn't do that. And friends, pride makes us all vulnerable to a fall. In fact, some military historians argue that Hitler could have won World War II except for pride. It made him believe he was unstoppable, so he acted in rash and foolish ways. The Titanic was thought to be unsinkable, so precautions were not taken. 
economists in our country used to believe that there were businesses in our country so large and diversified they were too big to fail. And friends like Peter, we are all tempted to believe that we are too big to fail. That we are unsinkable. That we are unstoppable. And pride blinds us to the warning signs. And we fall. This account reminds us, friends, that none of us is too big to fail. None of us. Consider that all of Jesus' first disciples, friends, Jesus' first disciples, the people who with their own ears heard Him teach, the people who with their own eyes saw Him go and perform miracles, the people who with their own feet walked with Him, the people who broke bread and ate with Him, people with first-hand experience of Him and first-hand access to Him, they were not too big to fail. So why do we think that we're too big to fail? And I know there are some of you here in person or maybe watching online, and you know you're vulnerable. You know and you realize that you are on the verge of your own failure story. Or maybe you're here and you've already failed, but you're actually just waiting to be exposed in your failure. You're waiting for the affair to be discovered, for the debt to become overwhelming, for your mistake to be revealed, for somebody to finally look at your browser history. For the deadline to point out your inability, for the divorce to be finalized, for your past to finally catch up with you. And when you're exposed for who you really are, you're wondering, is there any hope for a failure like me? Because many who once believed they were too big to fail now fear that their failure is too big to recover from. So my failed friends, casualties fallen in the battle of this life. Those of you who have been or are about to be taken down by your own sin and pride, hear today the gospel, the good news. For those who are in Christ, your failure is not the final word of your story. Your failure is not the final word of your story. The failure of Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples was not the final word in their stories. Friends, just before this account that Jeff read for us today, Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples. And at that time, he instituted what we now celebrate as the Lord's Supper. And at the end of the meal, Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Friends, do you you hear what Jesus said there? I'm going to drink and eat this meal again, and it will be with you. You're going to fail. You're going to fall this night. But one day, we're going to eat together again. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus predicted their failure, but he yet predicted a future with him. Because this is the gospel. Despite our failures, Jesus offers us a future with him. Because we all, like the disciples, we stumble and we fall. We make big promises and we fall on our faces. I'll never deny you, Jesus. 
I'll never fail you. I'll never lie to my spouse. I'll never lust after my coworker. I'll never cheat on my taxes. I'll never gossip about that person. I'll never drink too much. I'll never lash out at my children in anger. I'll never look at pornography. I'll never be ashamed and silent about you, Jesus. And then we fail. But friends, that failure doesn't have to have the final word about you. Jesus wants to have the final word about you. By his grace, when we confess and repent, we are promised a future with him. It's like we opened the service singing this morning, by your spirit, I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The resurrected king is resurrecting me. Friends, that is the gospel. That's the good news. From the ashes of our defeat, of our failures, the resurrected King is resurrecting us so that we can follow Him and so that we might have a future with Him like His disciples. Your failure does not need to be final. It does not need to have the final and authoritative word in your life because we follow a resurrected King who is resurrecting us from the ashes of our defeat, from the brokenness of our prideful promises, from our failed resolutions, from our feeble efforts. By His grace and power, He raises us to second chances. This is the gospel. It's the good news that we so desperately need. And friends, if you are here this morning, defeated, confess, repent, And by His grace, rise. Your failure does not have to have the final word about you. Because by the power and the grace of Jesus Christ, you can rise from the ashes of your failure and your defeat. Because He is the resurrected King. And He is resurrecting us. Friends, the disciples of Jesus, we see their story was not done. And your story does not yet need to be done. That night, Peter and the disciples, they all brashly promised Jesus. In verse 35, Peter says to Jesus, Even if I must die with you, I'll not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And friends, that night they all failed. That night, every one of them failed in their promise and their words to Jesus. But remember that years later, every one of them lived out those words unto their death. They failed that night, but they repented. By the power of Christ, they rose. And one day, they did live that out. Because rising from the ashes of their defeat by the grace of the resurrected King, one day, every one of them made good on that promise because every one of them went to their death for refusing to disown Jesus. Every one of those disciples faced persecution, beatings, imprisonment, torture, and death, but they refused to walk away from their claim that Christ was indeed the resurrected King, risen from the dead, and they all faithfully followed their King unto death. Everyone who fell away that night was raised up with Jesus from the ashes of their defeat, and every one of them died refusing to disown their King. So broken Weary, failed ones, hear again the gospel. God has brought you here, caused you to turn this video on so that you could hear this good news, that your failure 
is not final. It does not need to have the final word in your story because we believe in the good news of a resurrected king who is raising us up from the ashes of our failure by his grace and power so we can have a future with him. So Christian, when you stand defeated, remember the gospel. Again, as we sang this morning, when I stand accused by my regrets and when the devil roars his empty threats, I will preach the gospel to myself. I am not a soul condemned, for Jesus Christ is my defense. So follower of Jesus, when your doubt and shame hangs over, you cling to the gospel. You are not a soul condemned, for Jesus Christ is your defense. How do you need to believe and receive and experience the gospel today, maybe for the first time, maybe again. Because Jesus knew his disciples were going to fail that night. In part, they fell because, friends, they hadn't prepared for the battle. You know, it's important, friends, that every war in your life is going to be decided, and most likely it won't be decided during the war itself. Every war in your life that you fight is probably going to be determined by the battles that lead up to the war. Because almost every time a war is lost, it's because battles preceding the war were lost. I've run a few marathons now. And whether or not I cross the finish line is not determined on the day of the marathon. It's determined at 5 a.m. on a cold Tuesday morning and whether or not I get my rear end out of bed and go run. It's those little battles that we fight that prepare us for success or failure in the war. Friends, if the war is for you to be faithful in your marriage, but you're losing the daily battle against apathy and selfishness, if the war is to be faithful in your marriage, but you're surrendering the daily battle to lust and pornography, if the war is to be faithful in your marriage, but you're fraternizing with the enemy, allowing someone other than your spouse to be emotionally intimate with you? If you seed the battles, my friends, you are going to lose the war. Those daily battles, those seemingly little habits, those deceptively small defeats, that's where the war is going to be won or lost. And that's why Jesus calls his disciples in the garden to pray. He says, come and pray, because he knows that they're going to be tempted. He knows they're about to fight a war, and he says, then come battle in prayer so that you don't lose the war. Verse 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, because the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Disciples of Jesus, this is how we fight our battles. We battle in prayer. And many wars in your life are going to be won or lost based upon the battlefield of prayer. 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon said, It's well said that neglected prayer is the birthplace of all evil. He also warned, Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. Friends, prayer is the battlefield. 
It's how we fight our battles. It's where we fight our battles. And friends, if we're losing wars, are you fighting the battles? If we're losing wars, are we fighting the battles? If I'm losing wars, I might begin by asking, am I fighting and winning in the daily battle of prayer? If winning the marathon is determined on the early Tuesday morning, friends, so is winning the war in all the struggles and temptations of your life. It's determined by that early morning, regular prayer. And we see Jesus himself go to battle in the garden because he knew that the battle of prayer that was going to be fought in the garden was going to decide the war of the cross. Now understand, this battle isn't the first time that Jesus fought that battle. The battle is the culmination. Gethsemane is the culmination of all kinds of little battles that Christ has been fighting throughout his ministry. Jesus knows, though, that this is the final. This is the decisive battle. Verse 30 tells us that he brought his disciples to the Mount of Olives. And verse 36 says that it was the place was called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane literally means olive press because it was an olive grove on the side, the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it seems to have been one of Jesus' favorite places to go and to pray. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine tells us, Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. John 18, 2 says, Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So friends, going to the garden and battling in prayer, this was not the first night he did it. It was a place he often went. It was his custom. Jesus was regularly going and battling in prayer in preparation for the final war. Because whether or not we win that final war will almost always be determined by those battles. And this night Jesus invites his disciples into the battle in verse 39, saying, My soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me. In verse 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the garden was Jesus' moment of ultimate temptation. This was the battle that was going to determine whether he climbed Mount Calvary and bore our sins upon the cross. But Jesus knows the disciples are about to face their own war. And he says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. Pray that you might be victorious in the upcoming war. And what do we see the disciples do? What we do. They slept. They slept. These are the men who just moments ago were swearing their undying fealty to Jesus. Never mind dying with Jesus, they couldn't even stay awake with Jesus. And as such, when the final war was battled, they lost. They denied and they fled. Friends, will you sleep? Or will you pray? Will you stand in victory? Or find yourself in defeat? Jesus alone battles in the garden, and while prayer obviously guided Jesus' life, we see him throughout the Gospels praying. But in the garden, this was the ultimate battle. All of his little battles in prayer led up to this ultimate battle there in the garden. And friends, it was so intense. This is how Luke 
records the battle in his gospel. Luke 22, verse 41. Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, friends, Jesus kneeling down in the garden may not seem strange to us because kneeling is a common posture of prayer for us. However, in the Jewish culture, more often than not, when men prayed, they didn't pray kneeling down. They prayed standing with their hands upstretched to heaven. So for Jesus to be so overwhelmed that he fell down upon the ground and begging, begging in prayer, as if it was so much for him to bear. He cries out to the Father. Mark tells us he cried out in Aramaic, Abba, Father, a term of intimacy. If you're willing, remove this cup from me. Friends, the Hebrew Scriptures, the cup is a metaphor for God's perfect and just wrath on sin. It's an image of judgment. In Isaiah and Jeremiah, it offers dire warnings about the cup of God's wrath. His judgment is going to be poured out on the nations. In the book of Revelation, the rebellious city of Babylon is said to drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath. The cup is judgment. And Jesus knows that God's judgment is good. It's righteous. It's just. It's deserved. And it's going to be poured out on sin in its fullness. And Jesus knows that he's going to take that cup and drink it for you and for me. Again, 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, I love how he wrote this. He says, all the wrath due to Christ's people was condensed into that one cup of which Jesus began to drink in Gethsemane. As he put his lips to it and tasted it, so terrible was it that it covered him with bloody sweat. But he never ceased to drink until he turned the chalice upside down and not one black drop was found lingering there. And that one tremendous draft of love, the Lord has drunk damnation dry for his people. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. How could there be when Christ endured it all? Friends, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Christ has borne judgment for us. It's what we sang this morning when we sang the mystery of the cross. I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup of judgment reserved for me. Friends, this is the gospel on the cross. Jesus drunk damnation dry. We, the guilty though condemned, might no longer suffer judgment because he's taken that judgment upon himself. The wrath of God has been poured out and the cup is now empty so that we can stand forgiven. Church, this truth should move our hearts to worship. This should fill our eyes with tears because this should call us, cause us to fall down on our knees because this is the gospel. Church, we look upon the mercy of Christ and it should break us and overwhelm us. 
the power of the Spirit should move us to respond with a life of praise and thanks because there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're here or watching online and you do not know for yourself so great a salvation, then I would invite you to come at the end of the service, talk to me, come pray with one of those who will be up front after the service. For we would love for you to know the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the other side of good news is bad news, and the bad news was drunk dry by Jesus. He paid it so that we don't need to. God's wrath overflowing has been drunk dry. Jesus knew how horrible this was going to be and he tasted it in Gethsemane and he fought that battle so that he was ready for the war of the cross. And we hear him pray in verse 39, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, if that battle had been lost, the war would have been lost and we, we would have been lost. Because there would have been no cross, no sacrifice, no salvation. Jesus prayed in anguish and exertion and distress until his will was wrestled down by the will of God. And friends, that was the battle. The battle that Christ fought is the battle that every one of us needs to fight. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, that's the battle that we face daily. Will we let God in prayer wrestle down our will so that we will do His will? Not my will, but yours be done. Prayer is not meant to get your own way. Prayer is not meant to get your will. Prayer is meant to submit your will to His will. The battle of prayer prepares us for the war. And we need to pray that our will might become His. Evangelist D.L. Moody declared, spread out your prayer before God and then say, thy will, not mine, be done. The sweetest lesson I've learned in God's school is to let the Lord choose for me. And friends, that's easy to say, but that's hard to do. But prayer is a battle. And praise God that in the garden, Jesus battled and His will was submitted fully to the Lord's will. And because of that, the war was won. Because of that, salvation was won. Because of that, we have hope. And so, friends, as you come to the garden, whose will is going to be done? Whose will is going to be done in your life? And it's hard. It's a hard question because, friends, if God was willing to sacrifice His Son's life for the salvation of the world, what about your life? Might God sacrifice your comfort, your convenience, your possessions, your property, your will, your very life, that His will might be done in and through you? It's what He asked of Christ. And why would we expect anything less? Church, we need to return regularly, time and time and time again to the garden, battling that our wills might be surrendered and subdued to His will. Not my will, but yours be done. What would change? What would change in your life if that battle was regularly fought in prayer? How might God use you and change you if you regularly came to Him and let your will be submitted to His? That battle was the turning point 
that decided the the war. Friends, as you're fighting wars in your life, as you kneel in the garden, whose will is going to be done? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to bend a knee to You. Help us to submit our will to Yours. And thank You for Christ who battled in the garden that night so that the war against our sin might be won. So that we might be redeemed. So that we might be forgiven. So that we might be made Your people. Oh, Father, how great a love You have shown. And we're so grateful, forever grateful. We respond, Father, in praise. We respond in worship. We respond by laying down our very lives. Be honored and be glorified in us, your people, now and forevermore. Amen.